0: This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Okay, so hi, my name is Bhashika Shorkar. I teach here in the Film Studies Department. And uh, I'm delighted to welcome Shonak Shen, who is the director of this film. Uh, it's his first feature-length film, right? Uh, Shonak is also getting a PhD in cinema studies at JNU in Delhi. And uh, this was my third time watching the film now. And the two words that come to mind, and I mean both of them as compliments. One, uncompromising. Two, exhausting. Exhausting, of course, because of our own transferential relationship to the characters looking for Uh, a place to sleep as they're exhausted and walking all over the place. Uh, Uncompromising because of the kind of choices he makes of showing certain things and not showing certain things, of avoiding certain kind of pitfalls. And we'll get to that in a few minutes. But I thought we'd start off uh, with the basics. Why this topic? How did
1: you come to this topic? Uh, Firstly, thanks for inviting me, and this uh was... Lovely screening and the technically it's uh, it was excellent to screen here. Uh, so uh, the film actually the incipient impulse of the film was about four years ago. So I have always personally had massive sleep problems. So I was diagnosed with insomnia as a child, and it was fairly severe. So I think the interest in thinking about sleep and uh, thinking and uh, engaging with sleep intellectually, etc., uh, arose there um about 4 years ago i decided to just visit different night shelters in delhi and as one visited there one realized that so people sleeping in different night shelters nudged me to visit different informal sleep settlements so in 2011 according to figures there were about 3 million homeless only in delhi and these are official figures the total number of night shelters is about 250 mm-hmm. So the night shelters can only provide a very infinitesimal sort of a fraction of um, uh, shelter. And as I started visiting uh, Meena Bazar, I met Jamal Bhai, etc. Then one gets submerged in this world. And so we shot for about uh, two and a half years and edited it for about one year. So, I mean, uh, it started off initially only as as a personal sort of interest in sleep and trying to think of how one can conceive of sleep politically and socially and then it just became something of a free fall. Okay. Now cities of sleep it's also
0: got this huge social dimension and you kind of intimate that in the cities. Uh, It's many cities even if it's Delhi. Could you talk a bit more about that? And I'm thinking you know, in particular how this relates to things that you don't show but that are there you kind of invoke that right in the beginning of the film, when you take us to Lutians as Delhi, the Connaught Circus, but then you don't ever see that element again. And you could have shown us things like, for instance, you know, gated communities and the luxury condominiums.
1: Right. Um, you're right. So uh, the title Cities of Sleep also has to do with it actually not being Delhi's story. I mean, even if you went to a whole range of different kinds of uh, cities in the post-colony, you would encounter similar kinds of things maybe delhi provides a sort of special uh case study because it's a well-oiled machinery of mm-hmm. uh, the sleep uh industry there but you're right so the opening black and white sequence has to do with the idea of the every city of starting with a city that one is otherwise acquainted with and then moving on to uh the city that one isn't uh one of my initial interests was also also to see how a city gets completely remapped mm-hmm. at night there is a day city and there is a night city and it's a complete sort of a reconfiguration uh, that happens. And the idea, so, which is why uh, the rest of the film, of course, in the way that it's aesthetically dealt with is also that it's messy, it's grimy, it's jerky, handheld camera, etc. Whereas the opening is a kind of over-aestheticized sort of a thing Mm -hmm. which, to my mind, puts the city at an arm's length, puts the as an entity, the uh, idea of a city at an arm- and, and frames it in a particular sort mm-hmm. of uh, way. So we wanted to start off with this idea of the every city, and then move into the particularities of the two locations, Meenabazar and Lohapur. Okay. Um, the well-oiled machinery.
0: I will come back to that in a few minutes because that's really interesting for I think thinking about this film. Um, tell us a bit about your process. For instance, finding the subjects.
1: Uh, how long you shot for? Right. So, uh, in terms of finding the subject, I can. I think Shakil was a was actually when the whole project sort of started, uh, actually blossoming, as in it started taking shape in my head. Uh, Shakil. So, usually, what I uh, would do is that we would go to uh, these places, especially Meenabazar and then do long sort of vetting interviews with... Uh, it's funny using the word vetting in America, now, But you uh, <laughs> uh, uh, do long interviews with uh, characters. Uh, so say about 25 to 35 minute interviews, mm-hmm. just with people about their lives, about whether they'd be interested in working with us, uh, whether I'd be interested in pursuing their lives, etc. And while I was doing one of these initial interviews, one of my assistant directors came up to me and said that there's this guy who's going on saying that I will tell you things about this place that nobody else can. So I obviously invited him in front of the camera. Now, while we started interviewing him, uh, three things happened. Firstly, within the first 10 minutes of talking to Shaquille for the first time in my life, it became completely clear that this guy was a classic, unreliable narrator. (laughs) You know, it's like in the first 10 minutes, he said something about his family, then immediately changed it again, then immediately changed. Like his narrators keep like are a sort of shape-shifting beast. And that, I think, always makes for a richer kind of... Whenever the main voice is some is somebody whose perspective you cannot trust, it always makes for a richer canvas in storytelling. Secondly, I don't know if you guys caught the bit where he's saying that actually his name is not Shakil, He's not Muslim. Uh, he's Hindu. Yet, he's changed his name... Primarily because it's easier to find a sleeping spot in that particular area, and when you set out to make a film on sleep and you find somebody whose foundational and basic life decisions are completely mitigated by sleep-based factors, mm-hmm. it's it's uh, like it's a it seems very fortuitous, you know. So uh, that and thirdly, even within the kind of shadow world that uh, Meena Bazaar is, because it's something that springs only into life and existence at night. Right during the day, it's a bustling old Delhi market, which only comes into existence at night, even in that kind of a shadow world, Shakil occupies the bottom mm-hmm. rung. Even in that world, he is the yeah. outcast. He is the uh, margin. And whenever you're trying to, uh, to my mind, whenever one is trying to make a film on one particular sort of a world or ecosystem, the outcasts is always a more fertile and richer sort of a optic wire which to uh, explore instead of so uh, instead of going with somebody who slept in that area for 10 years somebody like shakil who's an outcast even there has a conflicted relationship with jamal bhai makes for a richer sort of a lens what kind of you know uh,
0: reactions have you had to shakil from people who have seen the film in various venues i say this because you know he's such an interesting character now i get it why you chose him but you know for from an audience's perspective this is someone who you just cannot identify with because he's so unlikable mm-hmm. and he's not you know easy to look at right uh, <laughs> He puts you at bay and yet at the same time, in a very effective way, you understand his exhaustion you know
1: so it's a very interesting kind of conflict that's set up i'm I'm glad that you said unlikable because I mean this has been one of the main. This is one of the main ethical compunctions of documentary practice about exactly how you try and uh, curate spectatorial engagement with somebody like Shaquille. Mm -hmm. Till the rough cut, I would always be very troubled by the fact that people would sometimes, while watching the film, have a sort of response which would keep being like... You know, like, there's a constant sort of a sympathy being generated almost in an autopilot way, especially for the middle class, Mm -hmm. uh, for Shaquille, which is when we brought in the scene where towards the end, he talks about beating up his wife. And he has this kind of a euphoric, chest-thumping sort of a manner in which he talks about beating her. And I know that Mm -hmm. that that moment especially sort of short-circuits the relationship that is set, so... Sympathy becomes a very dangerous thing obviously and uh, I, I really didn't want uh, the fact that he leads such a life of incredible abject inadequacy to uh, completely cloud over our engagement with the character. So it's a very complicated sort of a thin line. Mm-hmm. Also, uh, I had a very troubled relationship myself with uh, Shaquille because uh, uh, so very early on in the project, it was decided that uh, very often our shoot, our shooting time was bleeding into his labor time. He begs for a living, right? And I uh, and we decided that we will pay him for the time that he's giving us. I have absolutely no apprehensions or qualms about saying that, because of course, like documentary is not a charitable enterprise. It's not. I'm not. It's not philanthropy, right? I am. I've come here. It's something that I've gotten a grant to do its work, and I'm extracting something from his life. So, of course, one needs to uh, pay him for his uh, labor. Now, over time, what started happening is that it became sort of complicated relationship between us in terms of how we work out uh, stuff, you know. Mm -hmm. So, and after a while, so he was a serial vanisher. So, we would shoot him for three uh, weeks or a month and then he would vanish immediately. For four months, I wouldn't see his face. In fact, Lohapul, the second uh, location, came in because I was worried I didn't have a film. So, I needed to have a backup. So, uh, I mean, it's it's been a troubled sort of relationship. Now, uh, you all would be interested in hearing what happened to Shakil after the film. It's a f- fairly startling story. Uh, so, after the film gets f- edited, he completely disappears. After about a year, I uh, while casually watching a Bollywood film, Amir Khan's PK, I see him on screen. And we're gobsmacked, right? And... Uh, so he's playing the role of a beggar in what is a massive sort of a Bollywood film, like a mammoth uh, film with the biggest star in Bollywood. Um, so it's, it's just, it was just a bit role that a casting director saw him begging and there was a shot in which they required a beggar, so they just put him on. Now what happens is, in his village, there's a small regional film industry, like in uh, uh, that district in Assam, where he gets popular. And uh, he's his name changes to Manoj. His actual name is Manoj. Manoj P.K. Because P.K. was the name of the film. <laughs> and he starts getting uh, roles. Okay. So he does a couple of roles as beggars. As a beggar in films. <laughs> That's what we last hear, And we're shocked that this has happened. Uh, again, for about four to five months, we lose complete contact. Now, losing contact with him is very easy because he does he never has a cell phone. right? He can't afford a cell phone. So the only way we get to know when he's here is that you can't just, in, in, in a city like Delhi, you can't just go and beg. You, each road and each traffic signal, traffic light, is usually informally under the control of certain people. Informally. So you have to seek their permission to beg there. And those are the guys who we knew, who would always inform us that Shaquille was coming. Uh, so for t- about two to three months, we didn't know what, uh, where he was. He resurfaced about six months later, and it turned out that he has a terrible case of leprosy. And his face had gotten completely uh, affected by it. Uh, when you're a, when you beg for money, you have to straddle this very narrow line of being able to elicit sympathy, yet at the same time not be repulsive enough so that people hmm. move recoil from you. And his face initially seemed to be in that space, but now, so for the last year and a half, he's been getting uh, treatment which we've been helping him uh, with. But yeah, it's been a, it's been quite something with him. Tell us
0: a bit about the two locations that you chose and particularly this, you know, sense that we have of a mafia-like uh, organization, the oil oil machinery, versus the other one, which almost, you know, with Ranjit, it's like
1: an NGO, practically. Right. <laughs> From below. Um, actually, uh my main interest in the film uh, eventually became the Lohapul area. Because I think uh, the Meena Bazaar area that you see is a known sort of a. Um, like it exists in the world, you know. Mm-hmm. I use the word mafia carefully because I also <clears throat> mean it in the sense of it's not just a coercive or an exploitative thing at all. Of course, they're also providing protection. There is a kind of. Uh, people who are sleeping there are choosing to sleep there because they feel safer there. As simple as that. Of course, it often becomes coercive. Like, there is this scene where this guy gets slapped because he's defaulted on payments. But Lohapul, I think, is a remarkable place because, uh, remember, it started only a few years ago. So, Lohapul is the the two-tier iron bridge, underneath which is the river. But there's a thin strip of land under the bridge, and that's where people sleep. And the reason they sleep there is because Uh, There's a sort of tunnel effect and wind is stronger there. So in the summers, it's easier to get sleep there because it's a cooler sort of a breeze. breeze. Uh, But about 10 years ago, Ranjit recognized that most of the people in his class uh, around him were used to go to the cinemas to sleep Mm -hmm. because the cinema as a sort of environment provides a kind of safe sanctuary for you to uh, try and quickly smuggle sleep in. So he merged the two ideas and put a television set there and draped cloths there. Now, today, what's happened is that all the peop- everybody who sleeps there, we're talking about uh, around 800 to 900 people who sleep there, they've now opened a bank account with a well-known bank called the Sleepers Fund, like the bank account is on the name of the sleepers. Mm. Whenever somebody falls sick, they draw money from it. Uh, they've now gotten an electricity meter, which is an official electricity uh, meter. On the name of the sleepers there. So what's happened is that there is a kind of sleep is becoming a a kind of adhesive. This I think is new and unique to Lohapul and I haven't seen it anywhere else. Where sleep becomes the sort of basis or the foundation for a kind of kinship. A kind of safe sanctuary for uh, uh, people there. And uh, Ranjit has been able to mobilize sleep in a kind of enabling way so I do think it's a interesting sort of a instrumentalizing of uh, uh, sleep and community
0: and there is that sense of fairness about the breaking of the uh, yeah pump yeah and someone does get slapped yeah but for being nasty to the person who yeah. was yeah breaking it
1: remember that the film ends with the two venues almost becoming almost overlapping because the police, uh, because in Meenabaza, there's a skirmish with the cops, and like Shakil discovers in the end, that area has gotten completely ransacked and removed. In the end, Ranjit says that uh, Jamal had come to him and had offered to set up the cot beds there, but he refused, and the reason for that was that he didn't want to uh, because Jamal prices like his prices are really staggering, whereas uh, uh, Ranjit doesn't permit that. So Ranjit, firstly, Ranjit is a remarkable person, right? He is a, a intellectually, you can take stuff that he has say, said and replace it with a Foucault or an Agamben and you won't be able to uh, tell. You know, I really th- he's by far the smartest person I've ever met. And he also has a philanthropic sort of an impulse in him. So the prices are always, uh, are never very high. It's very, very low. Also, he understands the pulse of the place. So the pricing is based on either 7 rupees or 3 films. Mm-hmm you know so he understands the it's a kind of organic uh, sort of uh, setup there where he understands how it works also he philosophically engages with uh, sleep so the way in which the area has been sort of there is a kind of uh, concept so conceptualization of yeah that. yeah i mean these are people who are com- disaggregate during the day mm-hmm. very often don't even know each other's names it's only in the night when they come together they recognize the other person as the sleeper so there's a scene in the film where this guy has fallen very sick and the ambulance comes to take him. And if you remember the conversation where where the other person right before the ambulance comes tells him that as long as you sleep with us, we won't let you die. So there is a kind of a camaraderie, there is a kind of... Community. Yeah, I mean, I would use the word social contract. I, I understand yeah. that it's yeah. a... I mean, it comes with a baggage of a kind of Rousseauistic romanticism and, you know, like uh, <laughs> exclusionary genealogies of race, capital, liberalism, etc. But I do think that there is this sort of a... Uh, there, there is this something which has been activated there, especially in Lohapul. So, I mean, I wrote down a couple of things. The difference
0: between public property... And private property is sleep. This is Ranjit philosophizing. Or sleep takes us beyond the binaries of this world, right? You didn't mention Derrida. That would be Derrida. Uh, so, uh, with, you know, uh, he seems like this organic intellectual, but he's also the one who's providing us almost with a somnambulist's
1: theory of spectatorship. Mm. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, I, I, I'm glad that you asked that because I never uh, usually discuss the cinema aspect in it. But personally, to me, it was of great interest that exactly what is happening in a space like Lohapul. Because let us not forget that it is a space of the cinema. Mm. Um, so the first time I had ever gone to a Lohapul, as a demonstration, uh, Ranjit had done this. So it was about 11pm in the night and I, w- I had entered and um, everybody sleeping on the floor, right? About Uh, say in one of the cinemas about 400 people sleeping on the floor and you have to walk through the sleeping bodies Uh, and the TV set is always on playing films 24-7 like constantly it's always on and everybody's sleeping so we reach up to the television set and Ranjit turns the TV off and the minute he uh, turns it off everybody well like a large part of them like wake up with a jolt Hmm. So, it, it, you immediately realize that what is our relationship to uh, sleep in terms of sound and light. We need it to be dark. We need it to be quiet. And this is a place where you're... Const- there are two floors of big steel bridge overhead where vehicles are constantly gro- going true. and you're hearing sort of a thing. So, the sound of the film playing on the TV becomes sort of safe anchorage, you know, like a anchorage point around which... The number of times people said this, even Ranjit says this line that when you're sleeping outside, say when you're sleeping on the rickshaw outside, at any point of time, you can be, uh, somebody can move you and say, go come and take me to so and so place. Mm. The minute I enter and sleep here, I am not just the rickshaw puller or just the pusher. Or just the liberal. So I think he emphasizes on the on an idea of disidentification of a kind of suspension of identities, which is only happening within the kind of sensorium that the cinema hall inaugurates. And uh, this sense of not, so it's not an so traditionally if we had to very uh, broadly divide our uh, how we understand uh, a lot of cinema studies, it often has to do with either either ideas of immersion, you know, complete sort of spectatorial immersion or with new kind of new media sort of digital stuff, distraction, right? Multiple interfaces, etc. This is a completely different sort of an interaction with the screen where most of them, there's also the sequence where they're not looking. It's not a visual kind of an engagement. A lot of them, somebody's writing a letter home, somebody's counting the coins he has, somebody is on his cell phone, but they're all hearing it. It's a kind of a like an oral ecosystem which is enveloping the uh, space and providing a kind of safe sanctuary. Uh, which I was quite uh, uh, interested... It is a... I mean, this is cinema and everybody's... And it's called sleep cinema. And Ranjit a bunch of times kept on talking about the importance of not following a narrative. Like he has this bit where he says that very often I would fall asleep nestled in the cinema then wake up again after a while and I wouldn't remember if it was the same film or the other. But sometimes I would remember just scenes and I would... It, I would mix up what I was dreaming and what I was watching. Mm-hmm. This is a different sort of an engagement, like a different sort of an affective engagement with the moving uh, image. Yeah. Do you need the TV on? Because you started with your own sleep problem. I mean... Uh, I, I suppose, know people who do. Yeah, but I suppose for a lot of us, it's the digital interface that one can't, mm-hmm. because one is constantly yeah. uh, hooked in. So, no, for me, for me, the problem is no downtime. But the, here, I think it's a different sort of a universe. Yeah. That moment with that, you know, when he talks about we bought
0: a VCR and then we started showing movies. Of course, this is media piracy because, you know, they don't have the they do not have the license, really. Right. Yeah. Um, and then you talked about the well-oiled machine. And at what point I think Jamal says they say we are illegal, but we are actually providing a service so these are all entrepreneurial activities that also have in mind a certain kind of social service, but they are not strictly legal, and yet they feel kind of legitimate, right? So I would say, you know, these are activities that fall in between, somewhere between legality and legitimacy, and they are in the realm of the piratical.
1: Um, yeah, I mean... Uh so two things uh, firstly the you know the uh, i had started off by mentioning figures in terms of just how uh, we're talking 3 million mm-hmm. homeless officially the unofficial figures would be close to 4.5 uh, and 200 night shelters each of which can only house about 60 people so the when the rift is that high big then it is a necessity right it's mm-hmm. it's not even a social service it is a necessity so mm-hmm. uh, of course the authorities are aware of course it's entirely legal of course the municipal corporations know of course the cops know but everybody knows where do people sleep and the water commission calls ranjit yeah, to so, tell him yeah so mm-hmm. i mean of course there's a, it's an interesting kind of triangulation <clears throat> between yeah. the police uh, between the other different kinds of state Dispensations and a figure like uh, Ranjit. Just about this business of the uh, pirate tickle. So, of course, there is a constant sort of a salient bipolarity of the situation where the state is both coercive as well as a kind of cohabitation, as a kind of welfare system because the state allows doing this. And it's in that kind of a buffer in between liminal zone in which uh, somebody like Ranjit functions. Mm-hmm. I do think that Ranjit is a very interesting, new kind of a uh, emergent city figure. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, in a lot of sociology or anthropology uh, coming out of uh, India or uh, South Asia or the post-colony, we keep reading or discussing figures of the squatter, figures of the smuggler, figures of people who come in and extract and... But I don't think Ranjit falls under this. I think Ranjit is a more interesting kind of a emergent new f- phenomenon. Mm-hmm. Because Ranjit is also a police informer. Ranjit is running this entire thing. Ranjit is also, I don't know if you uh, guys caught the bit where they say that Lohapul is one of the most populous suicide points in uh, Delhi. So people come and yeah. uh, jump off the bridge. Now what Ranjit recognized is that so a lot of people sleep in the ridges between the bridge because the wind is cooler there. So what he instructed people uh, there to do was that whenever in the night you hear a loud splash like a pshh, in the river, immediately just jump down. So the next few times they jumped down and rescued people who were attempting suicides. Similarly, very often uh, when uh, uh, while interviewing Ranjit, I would get uh, Ranjit would get calls. And uh, these would these would be conversations where he'd say, Yes, sir. Uh, oh, you found another dead body. Is the tongue blue or is the tongue red? Ah, okay, okay. Then it must be, no, no, no. Then he's drowned. He's not been murdered. So the thing is that because he, he so Ranjit also uh, uh, controls all the boats in Yamuna. And that is the main ingress point into the city through mm. the waterways, right? So he has seen so many people drowning that in a way, he's become the default forensic Corona. agent, mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. The, of the Delhi cops. So, the number of times he would receive phone calls where he's he'd mm-hmm. ask them over the phone to okay, describe his fingernails to me. Are the fingernails uh, slightly yellow? And he would tell. So, what I'm trying to get at is that there is a kind of a uh, trafficking. There is a kind of a, a transactual relationship happening where Ranjit is providing security in that area. He's very proud about the fact that that entire stretch of delhi uh, it's extremely safe for women like he keeps mm-hmm. saying that there is there hasn't been one woman who's been ever harassed etc because i'm there he uh, under him certain drugs will not come in mm-hmm. whereas others could if he's interested in them whereas uh, some may very many don't under him these sort of things so you're right when the floods come it's the central it's the central water commission that literally calls him and says the floods are coming so, it is this kind of a dialogic space between the state and him. So, sure. he is a pirate, I, uh, I suppose, but clearly different from, how, from the other figures yeah. that contemporary sociology has uh, explained for us. Yeah. I
0: guess the crisis of legitimacy that you have with legal mm. figures, mm. he's an antidote to that in many ways. Um, my last question would be for you. This is a film where space... Is a character. If you can speak a bit more to that,
1: uh, I think it becomes more trenchant in the case of Loha There's also this shot where, from the boat, where uh, his voiceover says that, on top of us is the city with all the cars going by, underneath is death, and we are in the middle. And the shot also shows the uh, sort of cars going by. Mm-hmm. In the middle, there's this one guy throwing, casting a fishing net, and right underneath it is water. And this, uh, what I like f- about that line is the emphasis on liminality, on the fact that this is a strange kind of a subterranean zone in the middle, which actually allows Ranjit's world to function day in India or the fact that it's not visible. So in terms of space, it's really interesting. So um, trains go by from the top every half an hour. Now there's this one... Uh, suspicion or belief, which is that on every Tuesday, you throw coconuts into water, right? As a Hanuman, as a religious sort of a thing. Or there are other, like there are small practices such as tossing coins into uh, moving water. It's, it's considered an auspicious thing. Similarly, if a deity is broken, then you don't just throw it in the garbage bin, you have to throw it in uh, moving water. These are primarily Hindu uh, rituals. Except that what what that means is that and it usually is done on Tuesdays because Tuesday is the r- religious day. Now except what that means is that every Tuesday for all the people under the bridge you keep seeing psh, psh, every half an hour, right? So what Ranjit d- did was that he instated uh, young kids from that area who are basically waiting for the coconuts. So a, one, So the story of one coconut on a Tuesday is that one single coconut gets tossed by a car or a bike rider there are people waiting underneath who scoop that coconut, quickly run up, and before the same guy reaches the other traffic signal, sell it again. Mm. So the same coconut goes up and down a whole bunch of times uh, during this the thing. Similarly, there, there's this thing called Gotabazi, which is that when people are tossing coins... There are people underneath who are waiting with huge magnets. There are also some shots of that. Magnets? Yeah. So what they do is that they uh, throw that, throw the magnet into the uh, bottom of the river because there's so much trash that the bed has risen. The waterbed has risen. And they sort of troll it uh, through. And the coins get stuck to it. So in fact, there are a couple of shots like this of people just pulling ropes. Now, these are clearly organic gestures that have completely stemmed out of the particularities of the space itself. Mm. Mm. And Ranjit is special because he recognizes them and makes them yeah. and augments them in a in a way that is entrepreneurial and helpful. Socially useful. And socially useful. So these are all people who were, like a lot of them uh, were formerly rag pickers who've now clearly like... They're now called Gotabazis, which I don't know if it's a better uh, way of life. But clearly, he's been able to mobilize things specific uh, to that uh, uh, area. In terms of space, Meena Bazar is interesting also because there is a... Uh, remember, it's right behind the biggest masjid in Delhi, Jama Masjid. And there is a sort of a, uh, uh, Islamic culture there, which is also the backbone of... Uh, the main sort of charitable disposition uh, dispensation of food, which is why a lot of uh, uh, daily laborers live there, which is why people like Sh- uh, Shaquil find it easier and conducive to change their religious identities. And I, especially in today's time, I think it's remarkable that uh, there is, I mean, this sort of a, just uh, the metaphor of a person who has to change his name because the other religion seems to be more amenable to finding sleep in that particular area. Uh, I mean, I personally think it's interesting. Questions? Comments? Um, I found your documentary really interesting, and I just wanted to ask, um, what made you leave the part in where he's completely communicating to you guys, and he lets you guys know, um, you guys don't do anything for me. He's like, you guys just film me. Yeah, I was... Uh, uh, I'm surprised it didn't come up in our conversation. So, uh, you know, that that moment uh, is uh, was complex to me because uh, let me just tell you what that moment was and how it came about and then I'll tell you what I think about it. So, it's about three in the night and uh, Shaquille has seen that it's rained the day before and somebody else who got wet fell very sick. So, he wants to find another place to sleep in. He goes to all the former haunts that he used to sleep in. The subway, uh, a parking lot, uh, etc. And because this city of Delhi, like any other big metropolitan, is such a shape-shifting monster that it completely has changed. So he doesn't have access to those places anymore. So it's about 3 in the night and he's extremely tired. And he decides to rest in a, in a bus stop for a bit. I'm shooting him. Uh, and he suddenly turns and says... Uh, You always keep shooting me, but you don't do anything for me. That's what you see. Now, if I had let the shot play out in its entirety, uh, now, every day, at night, Shaquille knew that after shooting, there would always be a place reserved for him in the night shelter because everybody knew that we were shooting him. Yeah, My car was waiting about 20 feet (coughs) ahead. But still, this moment happens. He turns and asks, and I'm quiet. Now, if I had let that shot play out in its entirety, you would see after... 10 seconds of silence, me saying, what the hell? What are you talking about? And he would say, haha, sorry, sorry. Yeah. Now, but it's an interesting and a complex moment because in that turning and asking that question, is playing the role of the documentary subject who also turns and asks, right? And he's conscious of it. And there are different sort of intersecting kinds of enactments happening there. Me, in my silence, and I'm also performing the role of the the sort of guilty complicit filmmaker because there is such a there is such a dense legacy of exploitative documentary filmmaking you know where uh the where abject suffering becomes the sort of main thing to optically prey upon so i think in my sort of silence it's also sort of guilty hat tip to uh, that sort of a it's a sort of complicit guilt but what's interesting is that uh I'm also clearly performing the role of the documentarian who doesn't know what to say at that point of time. His and my relationship was complex because like I said uh, very early on in the shoot we had decided that we will remo- we would pay him. Yeah. So and also immediately after that shot the next shot that you see is of him going to his village to his hometown on a train. So of course we yeah. paid for it. of course right like of course the whole film is a constant sort of a jostling of intervening, stepping back, intervening, stepping back. There can be no policy decision on it. These are things that you just work out over the long period of time that you're shooting, which is a three-year period. So, I mean, but that scene, at least, what it does is foreground that kind of a uh, elemental sort of a compunction that everybody will feel when dealing with lives that are dominated by this kind of social, financial, and political inadequacy. I mean, you know,
0: if you noticed uh, at one point, he's... Is complaining someone stole in his uh, chappal, sandals. But then afterwards, he's wearing sneakers. Where do the sneakers come from? Like these little things that I noticed after I've seen them multiple times. But, you know, I mean, there's also the problem. The other side of this is the documentary filmmaker. The tendency would be to build him up as this noble beggar, right? He's such a bloody whiner. You know, he's unbearable. That's, that's it by itself, it's interesting, you
1: know? Okay. Um, I want to ask, because it seems like the women in this film yeah. are kind of a spectral figure, right? You have the wife isn't there, and you have yeah. like at least two single fathers. Yeah. Were there no shelters for women? Yeah. Were there spaces that yeah. you didn't yeah. have access to? Yeah. Uh, and particularly um, in terms of the migrant female labor that you... Are right. So, um, uh, sorry, I usually uh, say this as a kind of uh, disclaimer, opening disclaimer in the film. Uh, I mentioned like where the women are. When I had set out to make the film, it was a. Uh, uh, it had three chapters. It had Meenavazar, Lohapul, and this women's night shelter in central Delhi. Uh, after 10 pm, no men can enter, and rightly so, of course. I had two other friends who were directing that section for me, but eventually, just logistically, it was becoming difficult because I, w- I had gotten. And signed to becoming only a sort of footage reviewer because I couldn't this thing. I also realized that, uh, so the plan is to make a volume two of Cities of Sleep, which will actually focus on that particular uh, women's night shelter. Mm-hmm. You also see that there is no presence of the disabled or the transgendered in the film, both of which have a fairly uh, big population in Meena Bazaar. So there is a kind of dense cluster of these two uh, sub-communities. Uh, I realized that both these communities are, like, these are complex enough worlds that demand a whole film unto themselves. Mm-hmm. And I didn't want to do a sort of customary box tick to only put them in in this film. So the plan is that we will make a volume two of the film, uh, again, looking at sleep and the whole range of politic like issues that that opens up. Are you going to be showing this in other countries or in India? And do you think that perhaps this might encourage the Indian government to provide more shelters? Uh, um, I am showing it uh, as prolifically as possible. I mean, there is no... uh, The the documentary, uh, the dissemination of the documentary uh, circuit is extremely, extremely impoverished. It's it's almost nothing. So it most of it in uh, India or Delhi is this kind of a college gathering or public spaces. So I've had, we've had about thirty odd screenings in Delhi alone, and quite a few screenings across uh, India. Um, I've also we've also shown it in a bunch of other countries, uh, and in a bunch of other and there will be multiple screening tours in other countries immediately after this. Uh, I think what you're also pushing towards is whether something will happen, right? This is a question that I just don't know how to tackle because, uh, yes, the Delhi government, the current Delhi government is extremely responsive to sleep-based crisis, Mm -hmm. extremely responsive. So they did, uh, some members of it did see it and uh, some measures have been proactively taken. I have, however, come to realize that this sense of the government implementing change, it just doesn't, I mean, I've just the numbers that we're talking about it's not like the government will have to open probably a thousand other night shelters for it to be in any way causing a dent in the problem and that is not going to happen it's simply not going to happen anytime soon because even the government won't have this scale of presumably this scale of resources what has happened however uh in the last few months and i i mean this is these are the ways in which i think the film can help Is that uh, so? For example, this one psychiatrist who teaches at uh, University College London saw the film and got in touch with me and said he wanted to help. So he came down to Delhi and while he was talking to people at just providing counseling sessions to people at Lohapul, he realized that especially from the months of November to February, very often nobody bathes there because the water is only the water that's available is only the river water or from a tube well which is too cold to bathe in during the winters. So most of them don't bathe for about three, a lot of them don't bathe for quite some time and therefore have skin ailments, which causes them to not sleep, like which makes sleeping at night. And over time, this accretes into a really traumatic sort of a thing about constantly tossing about and not being able to sleep. So he suggested that uh, why not think of a way in which solar batteries can be used to warm up a water tank. I got in touch with this one social enterprise in this other city called Bangalore, who then sent down two thermal uh, engineers. And currently, as we speak, this thing is being built. Similarly, there are other people, there are architects who work who are working with portable night shelters, who are trying to. So, what I'm trying to get at is that a film, this business of what does a film do, is an entirely ineffable and immeasurable thing. Films are films enter your bloodstream. You know, films become a part of your intellectual DNA once you've seen it, and the ways in which that can then get articulated is impossible to put a finger on, uh, or predict, or predict, or in any way anticipate. So, uh, I'm I take great solace from the fact that, say, the fact that uh, social that uh, solar batteries are being put, or different people are extracting knowledge from the film to deal w- with whatever they're working with, be it lawyers working with homelessness, etc. So the film then becomes a kind of tool to wield in whatever way. I don't know if one should have or if it's healthy for me personally to start harbouring ambitions of triggering massive social change because I don't know if, it's, if that is feasible. Thanks for the film, Shonok. It has made me feel very exhausted. But
0: uh, I wanted to actually ask you about your editing style. Um, there seems to be a pattern in the film which is about contingency and even mm-hmm. these solutions that you talk about. So we're very precarious. One day there's a storm and one day the water. But there's also a kind of a repetition and a temporariness to sleep which is the way we think about sleep. It's a temporary state. So we follow Shaquille. A lot of the sequences begin with you following him and then something happens. So there's a choice of repetition. So could you talk about how you set up the pattern of actually keeping us pretty exhausted watching the film?
1: Right, that's a great observation, actually. Uh, um, So the main sort of... Crisis, while I edited it for really long, like I, we edited it for about a year and multiple editors and I finally edited it myself. So it's, it's been a very arduous and painful process, uh, personally speaking. But, uh, our main crisis was that essentially the film had to marry two distinct styles of narrative exposition. One is narrative you know, where you follow the spine of a character's life. That this happens in Shaquille's life, then this happens, then this happens, then this happens. He goes to a Sam crisis with Dad. It's like that is a more familiar, traditional sort of a style where you just do a, a observational verite kind of a style and just follow whatever is hap- like life implots action in it. The other style was the Lohapul style, where there is no story in Lohapul, right? It's Ranjit's ruminations. It's Ranjit's ideas. And shots of what you see, so which is a more essayistic kind of a style, and it's very difficult usually to marry the two, to marry because you know the joys that one gets from narrative exposition is a lot. You get seduced by it. You, it's like a roller coaster ride, which you just want to hold on to the spine of that and follow. And then in the middle, when a break comes, where suddenly somebody is just saying things about philosophical stuff about yeah. sleep, it gets very. Diffi- it becomes very which I don't think the film has still worked out. I still think it's still grappling with that sort of uh, tension. But I wanted to try and um, attempt a film which was both essayistic as well as into uh, different parts. So that was so one of the ways to counter that was patterning. To seed and to pattern. So you're absolutely right. There is a patterning of water. Almost every single crisis in the film is brought on. It's triggered by water. Be it the flood in Lohapul, be it the storm... Mm-hmm. Uh, there are people constantly coming and going. You barely actually ever see people sleeping. <coughs> Especially in Meena Bazar, you don't ever see anybody, uh, people sleeping. Shakil throughout the film is a kind of somnambulist figure who is restlessly walking uh, around and you barely ever see him sleep. You start from his back and then... Uh, so, uh, I was. we were early uh, earlier talking about the fact that you said that the faces has great affect. I mean... To put it, there is a kind of I don't know if ugly is the word, but there is something about the face which is the first time you see Shakilas from the back. And as the time as the film progresses, you move to the side. The first time you see his face completely frontly is on the day of his birthday, when he's getting a shave, and that is the time when you know, like he's been humanized completely. Like he's dancing, he's rapping, and all of that. So your relationship with him, your spectatorial engagement, is also entirely altered by that. And then you can confront the face sort of frontly throughout the film you don't see him sleeping at all the film ends at a point where every space has been denied to him he's come to the children's night shelter his closest friend first asks him for money realizes he doesn't have only gives him a few hours to sit in a chair Mm -hmm. and then Shaquille says that in the morning I don't know what's going to happen I'm going to maybe go off go back to the village I don't know what's going to happen And the last image you see of him is on a chair. And that image of him in a sort of limbo. Because um, sitting is neither horizontal nor vertical. And I wanted to end in a sort of, that sort of a limbo uh, axis sort of a thing. Where you don't know what's going to happen. It is very bleak. You don't know whether he's ever is going to get refuge or not. Uh, So these are the ways in which we are patterning. Water... Uh, movement, thinking about uh, horizontality and verticality, etc. And people coming and going because it's anyway a place which is very itinerant. So it's constantly like people who are coming and going. Okay, so I think that'll be it. Thanks,
0: Shona. Mm. And good night, sleep tight.